Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And uh, kids, if you are going to go to children's church, I want to dismiss you. Ziva is going to be handing around the Peterson and Daphne jar. For those that don't know, this is a jar for a couple of kids that we sponsor through ICCM, our denominational child care ministry. Uh, this is more than just passing a jar to collect more cash. I mean, we've already, we've already taken offering. This is a way that we are teaching our kids that the world is bigger than their own house. And it's a way that we demonstrate one of our core values as a church, the, the value of missions, the, the value of taking the story that we know to the world that is outside. So that's why we pass the Peterson and Daphne jar. You just keep that hand raised, Ron. Someone will come over there and get you. I, uh, I like a good plan. Anybody? <laughs> Abby laughs at me. I, I, I like a good plan. In fact, part of that is why I live by my calendar. The first thing in the morning, first thing in the morning that I do is I, I'll look at my calendar and I'll look at, okay, what's the day hold? And I'm making the plan for, in my mind. I got to be here at this time. I got to be there here. And, I, and this is the conversations I'm going to have. And when I get to the end of the day, oftentimes I look back over that same calendar and it's like, yeah, the plan worked. Got over here too. Now, Abby laughed because I like a plan in every area of life. I have a plan on how I brush my teeth. I have a plan on how I get my stuff ready to go for the next day. I have, we're going to take a trip this next week. I have a plan in my head for that trip. When we're going to get up, when we're going to leave, where we're going to stop, what we're going to eat. It's a plan. A good plan, well carried out, makes me smile. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, good. There's two of us in here. I know there's more. I know, okay, three, perfect. Um, a good plan, well carried out, makes me smile. This past Tuesday, uh, for the first time since the recalibrate training in Tampa, I got to get together with our board and our cabinet and start dreaming a little bit, start talking about uh, God's plans for us as a church. And um, it was fun to be able to do. Because I, I asked the, the board and the cabinet, the leadership, I said, you know, what, what are some of the things in this recalibrate process that you're hesitant for, that you're cautious for, maybe a little bit of, of, of fearful of? And they shared some wonderful things. And, and then I asked, what are some of the things you're most looking forward to? And, of course, some wonderful things were shared then, too. And, and it just warmed my heart when somebody on leadership looks at me and said, James, you know what I'm most looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing the plan, where we're going, how we're going to get there. That person said that, and they, too, smiled. Because a good plan, carried out well, should bring a smile to our faces. Now, we all realize that, our plans don't always work out the way we want them to. God's plans are always better than ours. As much as I try and kick and convince him that, no, Lord, my plan's better right now. And as much as we don't know what the plan in store for this church is in, in the coming weeks and months, we can trust that God has a plan. As I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking about this this morning and thinking of the fact that we'd be taking communion together before this message. And in, in a very real way, 
what we just did in, in remembering Christ's sacrifice and, and remembering the way he restored humanity, what we participated in was God's plan, right? This was God's plan to make things right. But if you think about it, or at least if you think about it from somebody who's outside the church, and not just outside as in, you know, maybe they've come and they didn't like it, but they've left. I'm thinking somebody who, somebody who does not know the story of faith at all. They didn't grow up around a church. They didn't have relatives that took them to church. They didn't do Easter and Christmas in the church. They don't know the story. If you think about this as a plan, in their minds, it would make absolutely no sense. Right? So let's pretend I'm having a conversation with somebody who I'm describing that does not have any sort of faith background, okay? And I say to them, look, we realize that there is evil in the world. They'd agree. We realize that things need to be made right. They would probably agree. And we'd say to them, look, if there were a God, how would he make things right? My guess is that it wouldn't take too long for that person to think and say, I know how. I think God would get the smartest people in the world the ones with the PhDs, the ones with the MDs, and the ones with whatever other kind of letters after their names they could have, the smart ones. And I think he would bring them into a room and he would describe the fact that, hey, guys, you're brilliant, you're smart, you know a lot, look around, There's not. this is not a good place. Evil, you know, things need to be made right. I need you guys to start coming up with a plan. And again, this is from a someone who does not know anything about faith. This is the, the plan that they would say God would use. So they'd get the smartest people in a room, and he'd start saying, all right, come up with a plan. And then I think that God would get the strongest people. You know, not just with the biggest muscles, but the ones with the biggest boats and the biggest planes and the biggest tanks. The ones that were mightiest. And he'd put them into the same room as the smart ones. And you say, okay, look, 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 we got the brains and we got the brawn. We're going we're gonna to solve this problem of evil. And then I think that this person would say, there's one more element to God's plan that they think should be God's plan. You, you need to bankroll it, right? You need somebody with the finances. So they'd get all the richest people in the world and they would say, obviously you look around, this is not a good thing that's happening. And we've got the smartest and the strongest, so pay for it, make sure it happens. That would be the plan. Now, if as a follower of Christ, if as someone who knew the story of the gospel, if I were to say to them, you know, that's, that, that is one sort of plan, but let me tell you the plan that God actually used. You know, God became one of us. God wrapped himself in human flesh. He became a baby, helpless, totally dependent on his mom. He grew up, he lived uh, not just a good life, but he lived a life that pleased God in every single area. And then he did some miracles, and then he healed some people, and it was going fantastic. And, and then, then this, this God man named Jesus was arrested, and he was betrayed, and he was beaten, and, and ultimately he hung on a cross next to some criminals. You know, I think at that point, the, the person who didn't know anything about the story of faith would throw their hands up and say, rubbish. That doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. Don't you think? I know it's hard for us to comprehend this because most of us grew up in and around the church, but if you're thinking of it from someone who doesn't know the story, this plan doesn't make much sense. 
And I think the Apostle Paul was wrestling with people who were trying to sort this thing out when he wrote the church in Corinth. Hopefully by now you have found 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. You can follow along with me. Paul says to the church in Corinth, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world to look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Verse 24. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says in verse 26, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy, when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. If you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. He said, as the scriptures say. We are in a short series where we are looking at things that somebody in the New Testament said, quoting the Old Testament, and we're asking, why did they say that? Now, there's two passages in this text that we just looked at, one in verse 19 and this one in verse 31. We're going to spend time looking at verse 31, and we're going to say, we're going to ask, why would Paul say that, especially after what he just laid out? Because what he just laid out was God's plan, right? And in essence, when he says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord, see, that's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. That's a paraphrase. I'm going to paraphrase what Paul just says. If you want to boast about anything, boast about the Lord's plan, because that is what he just laid out. And to these people that he's talking to, he reminds them, look, to most people, this, this is not a good plan. I mean, he's not using the best and the brightest that the world had to offer. That's verse 20. The plan doesn't make sense to the Jews. It doesn't make sense to the Gentiles. It offends one. It's nonsense to the others. And if you're going to have a plan that doesn't make sense, it's not a good plan. In this plan, the person who comes to save actually dies. 
And then to pass this plan on, to spread the message, God uses the nobodies. That's verses 26 to 28. And then at the end of it all, Paul says, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in God's plan. Why would he point back? Jeremiah chapter 9. Because that's what we know it goes back to that because the little asterisk in our Bible and the fine print on the bottom says that. It says that it's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. So why would God, or why would, Jer- why, why, why would Paul point back to that specific passage? I think it's twofold. And we're going to keep it really, really simple today because I think Paul would want it kept simple. I think the reason he pointed back to that passage, two reasons. The first is to remind the people of Corinth that God's plan, his method, really is not about them. It's him saying it's not about you. Anytime we go back and look in the Old Testament, go ahead and turn with me if you, if you can to Jeremiah chapter 9. Anytime we go back and look at a verse that is quoted, you also have to look at the verses around it. And we can do that here by looking at verse 23. I think Paul is saying, Corinthian church is not about you. This plan that doesn't make sense, it's not about you. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. Sound anything at all like Paul had just laid out? Yeah. It's a good reason for him to point back to that. Now, another reason he's pointing back to that, I think we can kind of infer in the the text, especially uh, chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. See, Corinth was a city that was a uh, a city of Rome, a Roman city, I should say, okay? And it was doing quite well for itself in the time that Paul wrote this. Um, There was people there that were rich. There was people there that were powerful. There were people there that were smart. We would call those people the haves, right? Now, any city that has haves also has have-nots. Follow me? Okay. Paul is telling the people in the church, and he's essentially saying, you guys are the have-nots. It's pretty clear. He's saying, look, I think you guys may want to be the haves, but that's not the plan. Well, if you can't be rich, if you can't be powerful, if you can't be smart, at least you can align yourself with somebody who is one of those. Verse 17, I think. Actually, it's in verse 12. Paul, Paul is saying, look, don't say you follow Peter. Don't say you follow Apollos. Don't, don't say you follow me. Don't align yourself with maybe the spiritual halves because that's not the plan. And he says, remember, you guys aren't the halves. This is verse 26 to 28. Remember, few of you were wise in the world's eyes. You weren't powerful. You weren't wealthy. Instead, God chose Not the haves, but a different way, a different plan. And why did God do that? So that people couldn't boast. That's verse 29. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. If the plan of our friend that we talked about at the very beginning of the service were to work, all the richest, all the smartest, all the strongest in the room, and they were able to take care of evil in the world, at some point one of them is going to say, yeah, we helped God do that. We should, we, should, we should be given salvation because it was part of us that did that. Well, Paul's laying it out saying, God did it this way so that we can't boast. So that we can't brag about something that we did. Paul wrote the church in Ephesus. And he said, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. 
It's not a reward for the good things we have done. None of us can boast about it. I think in this, in laying out the fact that that the church that he's writing to is the have-nots, he's reminding them, look, it's not about you. And in verse 23 of Jeremiah chapter 9, he's saying the things that you would normally have claimed, wisdom, power, riches, that's not what it is. So if it's not about you, they may be asking, what is it about? Again, keeping it simple. It's about God. And that's where it ties back to the paraphrase that Paul quotes in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. God says, don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, the powerful boast in their power, the rich boast in their riches, but let those who wish to boast, boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord. That's where Paul is able to paraphrase, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. So Paul tells this church that probably has a lot of uh, people with Jewish heritage. He says, look, if you're going to boast in anything, boast that you know God and, and that you understand God. And they're probably scratching their heads like, wait, but our, our, our prophets told us we can't understand God. Isaiah 55, right? Eight and nine, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. We just can't understand it. Job's friend said to Job, look, God is greater than we can understand. So maybe the listeners of Paul that day were saying, wait, we can't understand God. Well, if, if you look closely, that's not really what Paul's saying. He's saying you can understand that God is God. But before that, he's saying you should boast that you know me. And here's where I think Paul is pointing not just backwards, but he's pointing forward to Jesus. Because how are we to know God? The only way we can know God is through Christ. Colossians 1 verse 15 says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. But before Paul even wrote that, Jesus himself said this in Luke chapter 10 verse 22. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Father except the Son and those the Son chooses to reveal the Father too. John chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So put those together. God chose us, or Jesus chose us, so that we could know God. And so that we could know that God is God. That's what this is saying. Those that wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they, understand, that they truly know me, and they understand that I am the Lord. So Paul says, he points back to Jeremiah, and he says, it's not about you, it's about God. And when we can understand that it's about God, then we can realize the rest of the passage makes logical sense. If we're trying to right the wrongs in the world, it's going to be God that does it. They should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord, who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth. If there's things going wrong, if there's things that need to be fixed, and it gets fixed, that's called justice, right? If you are not right with God, and somehow God makes you right with himself, call that righteousness. God did it. And how did he do it? What did it look like? So God did this by demonstrating unfailing love. It wasn't big guns. It wasn't a big boat. It was unfailing love. What does that look like? It looks a lot like 1 Corinthians 13 that we prayed earlier. 
It looks a lot like John 3.16. For God so unfailingly loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish. That's the plan. That's the plan that Paul laid out. God does it. God does it. But those that wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me. They understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love, who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Did you catch that? God likes a plan that works. He delights in it. When you delight in something, you smile. I think God smiles at this plan. So I told you we're going simple. It really is simple. This whole plan that we don't understand, that, or at least people outside the church may not understand, it's a reminder that it's not about us. It's about God. So what do we do with this? I mean, we know this because it's, it's simple. What do we do? I think there's, I guess you could say, five things that we could do. The first is this. It's found in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. So the first thing we need to do as we are learning to accept God's plan is to unite ourselves with Christ or allow God to unite us with Christ. Because when we're united with Christ, it reminds us that it's not about us. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for it is light, and I will teach you. I have a yoke up in my office, an, an oxen yoke that's fit for two oxen. And I have that in there specifically because I want to remember that as I'm trying to do things in my plan, in my way, that I'm not the only one pulling this yoke. And in fact, Jesus tells me, let me pull the yoke. So I can look over and I can see that other place. And I'm reminded that it's not about me, it's about God. Okay, so we must be united with Christ. Now the second thing, we let Christ do the work. It's the rest of verse 30. For Christ has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Who made us right with God? Jesus. Who made us pure and holy? Jesus. Who freed us from sin? This is fundamental. Okay, and I realize that, but sometimes we just have to be reminded of that. When we are united with Christ, it reminds us that it's not about us. When we let Christ do the work, it reminds us that it's all about God. Now, for those who like more traditional language, it says Christ brings us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I think in a lot of your Bibles, that's what it's going to say. Made us right with God, pure and holy, and freed us from sin. If you're having a conversation with your friend at the beginning and you both agree that not, something's not right in the world and that evil's there and that God has to fix it, we just see that through Christ, he does. So those two things, three more, okay? We need to learn to trust God's plan. Now, broad strokes, that means we trust God's plan of salvation. As much as it makes sense to us, as much as it doesn't make sense to us, it's the plan and it works. 
Okay? So trust, that, that, that's big. Trust God's plan for salvation. Second thing, I think we can trust God's plan in the everyday bits of our life. So what I want you to do is just for, for a minute, think about this coming week. Think about perhaps a conversation you're going to have. Perhaps something at work that you need to do. Perhaps a, uh, there's a trip or a health concern. You may already be thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. Take it before God and say, God, I don't know if my plan's the right way. What's your plan? Can I trust you in this? Not can I, but I do trust you in this. Okay? Unite yourself to Christ. Trust Christ to do the work, which is overall his large plan of salvation. Trust him in the small things. And then as a church, I told you that one of my leadership said, I'm looking forward to seeing God's plan for where we're going through this recalibrate thing. Be praying for us as a church that we can discern God's plan for where we're going. Because I can tell you that I think it's going to come down to those two simple things, the whole reason Paul pointed back to Jeremiah 9. I think God's going to remind us that as we move forward, it's, it's not about us. And that may be hard to hear. We've met Jesus, right? I mean, most of us. And if you haven't, come talk to me, okay? But we know Jesus. We're going to spend eternity in heaven. There's a lot of people out there that won't. So I think that as God's, I think that God's going to say, look, part of this plan for Recalibrate for your church is going to be a renewed heart for those that don't know Christ. Because it's not about you, which means there's going to be some things that we probably, and, and I'm, that we probably have to change. Maybe our favorite this and our favorite that that we like and that we're comfortable with, maybe we have to do it a different way so that people who don't know Christ can come to know Christ. Because that's ultimately why we're here. So I think in that plan, I think God's going to remind us it's not about us. It's about him and his glory. So many times Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. How's he do it? Through a crazy plan that doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but to a plan that works. Questions? Ooh, how's that? I don't do that very often. We got, uh, the, the people that are up in nursery right now, I always preach really, really, really long while they're up there, and I'm done. So if there's questions, we can talk for a while. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your plan. I thank you that, I mean, selfishly, Lord, I thank you that I have grown up knowing the plan. And even in days where it may not make total sense, or I may think there had to have been a different way, I thank you that it is the plan that you have picked, and it's a plan that works. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church remember those two simple things. You've saved us, so there's nothing we can do about it. Therefore, it's not about us, but it's about you, and it's about what you have already done. I pray, Father, that you'd help us figure out ways to share this plan in a way where people don't run saying that's craziness, that's foolishness, but in a way that perhaps speaks to their heart, to where they can see the fact that you passionately and unfailingly love them. God, give us wisdom and discernment as a church, as we seek your heart for where you want to take us in the days ahead. Reveal your plan to us, Lord, and help us to trust that plan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.